Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be sharing this space with you and with Linda Tai. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Priscilla, pronouns are she, her, and I'm coming to you from Los Angeles, which is the native people's land of the Shumash and the Tongva peoples, um, recognizing that I am on unceded territory. And I'm, again, just so honored to be here today. Um, I'm going to read Linda's bio. Uh, Linda Tai is a trauma therapist and educator who specializes in brain and body-based modalities for addressing complex developmental trauma. Linda has worked with thousands of people from all over the world to promote mindfulness, recover from trauma, and tend to grief as a means of self-care. Linda's work centers on healing with a special focus on the experiences of adult children of refugees and immigrants. Her teaching is infused with empathy, storytelling, humor, research, practical tools, applied knowledge, and experiential wisdom. She assists internationally renowned psychiatrist and trauma expert, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, with his private small group psychotherapy workshops aimed at healing attachment trauma. She has a master's of social work with an emphasis on the neurobiology of attachment and trauma. Linda has studied sensory motor psychotherapy, somatic experiencing, brain spotting, internal family systems, trauma-informed stabilization treatment, havening touch, flash technique, and structural dissociation of the personality, and offers a safe and sound protocol, yoga, and meditation with her practice. Linda works on the traditional lands of the Tanana Athabascan people in Fairbanks, Alaska, with those recovering from addiction, trauma, and mental illness. She is passionate about breaking the cycle of historical and intergenerational trauma at the individual and community levels. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Um, and I want to give you this opportunity to introduce yourself in your own words and then to lead us in the centering. Thank you so much, Priscilla. And thank you so much to the Prison Yoga Project for inviting me to be here with you all today. Um, let's see, I'm just going to take a moment to ground myself. You've just gotten my professional um, bio and introduction. And, you know, I was born in Vietnam. I was raised in Australia. And these days I live in Fairbanks, Alaska, the unceded stolen territory of the Tanana Athabascan peoples of the Middle Tanana Valley. And I actually come to you today from the land of the Coast Salish Duwamish people, the Seattle area. And I'm a former child refugee. And I name that and I claim that. And I also name and claim that I'm redefining what it means to be Vietnamese. I'm redefining what it means to be Australian. And I'm redefining what it means to be a United Statesian. And that is a result of so much of my own process in terms of reckoning with the historical trauma of colonization and war upon myself, my family, my people, and recognizing that the aftermath of that, which I experienced as codependence, addiction, being raised in a home where I knew my parents loved me because they were busy working, you know, that benign neglect, 
as that benign neglect as a result of having parents who are traumatized but not traumatizing. Yeah, the aftermath of a forced traumatic displacement and how that expressed in our family and also expressed in my culture and also expressed in me and unraveling all of that, you know, unraveling all of that has resulted in me being a trauma therapist out in the world. Yeah. And today we're going to speak into all of that. It's going to be like a speaker meeting on steroids with Priscilla doing the back and forth with me, which I'm so excited for because I don't believe we actually, in the world of addiction recovery, actually pause for long enough and recognize the context within which our addictions arise. And some of us may discover adult children of alcoholics and others raised in dysfunctional families. Some of us may, you know, through Al-Anon, or through Codependence Anonymous, start to foray um, into the family dynamics. I own, I won't say every, I own a lot of 12-step readers, and not one of them talks about war. Yeah. And so there is there is so much to unpack here. And when I look back on my own history of reckoning with uh, complex developmental trauma, intergenerational trauma, codependence, addiction. The, the turning point for me was when I discovered meditation and yoga. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Which is why I just love being here with you all, with Priscilla and with Prison Yoga Project, because that capacity to pause for long enough with curiosity. That capacity to move towards activation or immobilization with discernment was the was was the shift for me. Mm. And so Perhaps let us begin with a guided mindfulness practice. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So if you like, I'm going to invite you, if it's okay with you, to roll your shoulders, to do a wrist dance. Do an elbow dance. Perhaps this becomes a torso dance. Perhaps a movement through the midsection. And if you like, also some ankle dancing. (laughs) And allow, as Priscilla is demonstrating, whatever is underneath to express itself. If it's a stretch, a lengthening, a taking up space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. For so many of us, we stay in a semi-frozen state. You know, sitting is the new smoking. (laughs) And then we become very still and it becomes very treacherously close to becoming frozen. 
Mm -hmm. That straight jacket of ours. So now that we've moved that out of the nervous system, if it feels okay with you, I invite you to remove your shoes and your socks if you would like to and to scrunch your toes and move your feet and connect to the ground. Mm-hmm. Pushing into the floor with your feet, your heels, your toes, perhaps making some movements, perhaps pushing into the floor with your feet and your toes. Mm-hmm. And then as you're ready, find that settling through the feet, perhaps through the spine. And then as you're ready, I invite you to play with the position of your head on your neck, on your shoulders. And feel into what feels right for you in this moment. Excuse me, I just belched, which I take as a sign that I found the Goldilocks. (laughs) Your eyes may be open or closed. And I invite you to notice the breath if that's okay. To notice the ground beneath your feet. If it's okay to receive the support of the chair beneath your body. And if it's okay to receive the nourishment of the breath. And perhaps you may notice a gentle rocking on the inside as you breathe. an internal drumbeat or an internal wave or pendulum swinging. And if it's okay with you in this moment, I invite you to perhaps externally rock. And perhaps this is matched by the breath and perhaps not. And perhaps this rocking is forward and back. Perhaps it's side to side. Perhaps it's a circular or semicircular.
And perhaps as you stay here, the urge or the desire for some self-contact may arise. And if that does, I invite you to experiment with what that could look like. If that feels appropriate for you. And then as you are ready, and there is no rush, if your eyes are closed, I invite you to gently open your eyes while maintaining this, whatever this is that arose for you in this process. Thank you so much for that, Linda. Thank you, Priscilla. Um, the self-touch that came up for me was was a hug and feeling some pressure on my on my arms. And then uh, I thought about that clip that I sent you. Um, there's a show called Reservation Dogs. And it follows a group of, of young Indigenous teens. Um, but there's a scene where she, one of the characters, you know, is feeling alone and needs help. And she calls in her ancestors. And that's why <laughs> was, it's, it's such a powerful clip. All her ancestors standing behind her, putting their hands. She's not alone. And and then it made me think, oh, the uh, the title of our meeting today, intergenerational, calling upon yeah. community for care. So thank you. Thank you. You know, what arose for me was a hand on the heart and a hand on the belly. But what I really wanted to do is to actually hold my face like this. But I felt too self-conscious too. But given that you were just, you know, courageous and just shared, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to share this. Yeah. And this causes me to think about all the ways in which I would use sex and love as a way of trying to get this feeling of, of being held like this. Okay. And yet I can do this for myself now. And the beauty of the intergenerational repair that I've been managed managed to do with my family is that I can actually lay my head on my, you know, on my parents and grandparents in this way. And yet so much of my life has been about chasing this missing experience. 
and sorry, I had five thoughts come up at once and I didn't know which one to say. (laughs) (laughs) Great. And yet this has been a long journey. It's been a long journey. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's these these little things that can be so accessible, but so easily forgotten. Yes. Yes. And you know something I often I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm actually gonna do this. I'm gonna lean forward, put my elbows on the desk, and just <laughs> put my face like this. You know, I often say that the strategies that keep us alive keep us from living. And this, this right here, this conversation with you in front of folks being live streamed onto YouTube and, you know, on there thereafter, this wouldn't have been possible for me for the majority of my life because I learned to be in, I learned to be invulnerably autonomous. Mm-hmm. Yeah which is a theme that I see through so many of us in addiction recovery. We had to learn how to be invulnerably autonomous. And yet underneath there is this little infant, toddler, Mm -hmm. child who didn't get enough of this. Mm. And yet if you had asked me for most of my life, you know, about being vulnerable, about experiencing nourishment or nurturing I just sort of looked at you like you were a a three-headed alien (laughs) (laughs) I imagine that must feel and likewise like it's such a release to let that go because being that that way it's it's constantly holding an armor it's constant a constant tension Yes, there was so and much. Just shed that. Your shoulders drop. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, every strength taken too far becomes a weakness, right? And so, you know, the only way I knew how to deal with this armoring was through drugs and sex. Because in those experiences, in those environments, I could actually let go of the body armoring, but then I'd just be all floppy, right? <laughs> so I'd go back and forth between being rigid yeah. and being floppy. And recovery taught me how to have a center. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's pretty huge in in the addiction community. There's no middle. You're either going all the way like this, all the way like that. And that's not a balanced, it's it's not a, yeah, it's not a balanced lifestyle. It's not sustainable. Mm-mm. No, no, it's not. And it was mindfulness that gave me this, right? Because before I discovered mind, actually, when I discovered mindfulness was when I actually discovered how much of an addict I was. Because prior to that, I had absolutely no idea. And so I stumble into yoga and into um, meditation. And then I'm sitting there and I'm practicing being still with myself. And that's when I began to notice all the ways in which I would avoid being in the present moment. 
And yet I was able to maintain this non-reactionary and equanimous nature of the mind through silent seated meditation. And then through the practice of yoga, I actually got to notice the chitta vritti of the mind. I got to notice, you know, like how you do one thing is how you do everything. How you are on the yoga mat is how you are in life. And I'm on the yoga mat and I'm like cussing, right, in my head to the yoga instructor, right? And I am competing and comparing myself to the yoga instructor and to all the other students in the space and beating up on myself and forcing myself. Mm-hmm. to be better than everyone else. And in those moments where I got invited to breathe with, lean towards sensations, you know, notice the how of your yoga rather than the postures themselves, mm-hmm. I got to see that how I did my yoga was how I did my life and how I did my meditation was how I did my life, right? And in my life off the meditation cushion and off the yoga mat, I actually began to become aware when I was pushing against something, reacting automatically, avoiding, complying, deflecting, uh, defending, denying. And it, it was it was really profound. And suddenly during that period of my life, I got invited to um to to lead yoga after a 12-step meeting. Right. One of my friends at the time was in recovery from um, opioid addiction and said, hey, you've just become a yoga instructor. Can you come and lead yoga after 12-step? Because I think it will be a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went and did some classes. <laughs> and in those classes, um, I, learned some, I learned some things about myself, but I didn't identify as an addict. Yeah. 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 Um, so I studied with Les Leventhal and then I studied with Nikki Myers, who are both you know, yogis who are in recovery themselves. Mm-hmm. And Nikki Myers does this stand-up, sit-down exercise, right, and noticing sensations. And she has a whole list of questions that she asks. And I just started crying from the very first question, which was stand-up if, stand if your parents took you to plays, museums and art galleries as a child. And I'm just sitting down and I'm noticing all the people who are standing up. Mm-hmm. And then the next question was, stand up if you had more than 50 books in your house growing up. Uh, and I actually noticed myself standing up, but I couldn't not cry. And that's when I started to go, oh, this is shame. And about that same time, Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability TED Talk comes out and I'm like, I'm such a big ball of shame. And I've been like anti-shame my entire life and so I'm like you know following Brene Brown's work I'm you know getting into leading these yoga classes after these 12-step groups and I'm sitting there in awe that these people and I don't mean to other you, but at the time I was othering yeah. you, right? These people, <laughs> these people were able to talk about their feelings in real time and be vulnerable. And here I am trying to stuff down my feelings like every single week. And yet I can relate so much to everything they were talking about, right? Like obsessive thinking and control and 
you know, feeling like an imposter and a fraud. And, you know, somewhere after six weeks, I said to the group, I really relate to everything that you're talking about. And I know that drugs and alcohol are part of my history. And right, they started reacting just like you did right then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm saying like, I can relate to everything you're saying. Drugs and alcohol are part of my history, but, you know, there's... And I'm feeling odd about having so much affinity with you. And so the very next week, someone brings in the patterns and characteristics of codependency. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that list and I was just like, with, with that, I mean, I'm showing how I feel now, but, at, you know, it was just, oh, shit. Oh, shit, shit, fucking fuck, fuck, shit. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I feel ever so grateful because I was so invulnerably autonomous and um, anti-dependent that I wasn't able to see these aspects of myself, right, that need, rage, shame, addiction cycle. Yeah, and shame was a feeling I was, I'm an addict to control Mm -hmm. and I'm addicted to not ever experiencing the feelings of shame judgment, rejection, abandonment. Yeah. Ever. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, my world kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And I couldn't not. And as I learned, you know, anti-dependency is the other side of the same coin as codependency. Yeah. Yeah. What was what was the thing that you said before? Your strength taken too far becomes a weakness. Strength taken too far becomes a weakness. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I needed to armor up in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With what I know now, right? With what I know now about the family dynamics of addiction and family of origin dysfunction, like that's that gives rise to the child being under-supported and under-resourced, mm-hmm. needing to find something to bond with or bond to, right, whether it's a substance or a behaviour or a, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I bonded to books. <laughs> like book, I love books. Books love me. Yeah. Right. Um, but I mean, the nuance in there is the aspects of class and education and the fact that my parents spoke a different language to me and intellectually I couldn't connect to them. Yeah, and so books filled in that void like it does for many immigrant and refugee children. Yeah, and yet there's also the missing experiences of being nurtured, having our parents be there for us in the ways in which we needed because, you know, we're not getting bombs dropped on us anymore. We're not on the run from the communists, right? Like, you know, so what if a kid says something, you know, racist towards you or is bullying towards you, yeah? And so having our my feelings, yeah, be, be dismissed or mm-hmm. minimized or, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And so, and in amongst that context, you know, my parents, my parents had their own unresolved trauma. And so they, they, they were very huggy, touchy people. 
Yeah. And so into that void of that human need for touch, you know, I am, I am looking at my people and I'm looking at white people, like growing up in Australia in the 1980s, I'm looking at television, which is, you know, these happy white families. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at my culture. And I had no idea back then that all the all the Vietnamese adults that were in my life were all traumatized as a result of being refugees, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I conflated trauma with my culture because there was no one there to help explain that to me. And into that void stepped internalized whiteness as superior to. Yeah. And into that void um, was also within culture rejection where I'm rapidly learning English because there aren't many other Vietnamese folks around because it was, you know, it was very early days of Vietnamese people in Australia. And I'm wanting to be seen and met and had right? mm-hmm. and held yeah. and identified with. Delighted in. And delighted in, yes. Yeah. 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 And so I, you know, and I had a dysregulated nervous system as a result of being two years old during the refugee experience. And so I'm looking for ways in which to, to, to get all those developmental needs met as well as my nervous system by finding some sort of comfort um, because my parents' bodies and nervous systems weren't there for me and the village wasn't there for me the way it would have been in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, recognising that that even though I want to blame my parents, yeah, they're also part of something bigger. And how this has been a really concerted, you know, 20-year process of reconciling all of this. Yeah. And we're not meant to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Just just that part alone. My brain's like do 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 a million things. Welcome um, to you, Priscilla. But just saying that, you know, this it's been a 20-year process. Mm. And you're I, I'm not assuming that you're saying, and you did it. <laughs> <laughs> you're done. Now, like this is this type of work is it's a lifelong journey. Um, and I have a friend in recovery, and you know, he folks can get a little like, I want to get, I want to get through it. And I want to go like, when I want to graduate. And, um, and he said that someone had told him before an elder had told him, I, what I wish for you is a long and slow recovery. And I love that. And especially with that in, in this culture, in this society, there's the hustle culture, the go, go, go get it done yesterday. And that can be easily, you know, in, internalized and used in every aspect of my life. And and now it's it's a slow down, but things integrate, and things and something like that. Healing is a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. So if you feel like, or if I feel, 
Like, I don't have the goal yet. I don't have the thing. I don't have the feeling. I don't have the place. I don't have partner, whatever it may be. Just need to be soft with it. And it's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. And there's no graduation. You know, there's no, I did it and now I'm done. I'm healed. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Life is a marathon, right? It's not, but we live life like as if it's a series of sprints. Mm-hmm. And to your friend in recovery as well as to those of us in recovery who have a very strong fight, you know, we, you know, we want to get to the goal. We want to win. We want to conquer. Yeah. That is how we survived. Yeah. That, that is how we survived. That fight, that survival imperative. Mm-hmm. And it's what gets us into recovery. And then in early recovery, we're mm-hmm. like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I recovered. I win. <laughs> And we, and we need the high fives, right? We need the encouragement. And yet at some point, maybe perhaps, right, we can actually begin to enjoy who we are and to enjoy the process of growth, growing, mm-hmm. learning, becoming. Yeah, the process of life. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I've forgotten all the other things that came up, but that one was right at the front. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. You know, it's humbling. Addiction recovery is so humbling. And what I've learned along the way to addiction recovery is for me, for me, if I don't eat humble pie, I'll end up eating a shit sandwich. Uh, And I've eaten way too many shit sandwiches that I've created for myself because I wouldn't eat humble pie. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, I'm actually really grateful for the way in which I just face planted into 12-step groups as a result Mm -hmm. of being invited in to teach yoga because I wouldn't have... Um, otherwise come into 12-step groups. Yeah. And and that sounds like that was the beginning of of your journey into transgenerational trauma and healing. Because you had to be present with yourself first. You were still first. And then was able to get into mindfulness and then learning. And then, and I feel like addiction or recovery or healing in general brings compassion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in my journey of healing, every time there's, there's that blame because blaming feels like I can just blame this person. I can blame my parents and then I don't have to, and then I'm done. My part in that is done because it was their fault. Um, But maybe it's age and it's healing. It's like, oh, my, my parents were need healing too. So then that compassion comes in and then, okay, well, they probably needed healing from their parents. And then what are their parents? And then. And then you realize and you recognize, you know, trauma is passed down through the body, through communities, through societies. And, and we're the lucky ones here, here in this moment that get to work on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I forget where I, I feel like you've said this because I've taken some courses with you, you know, healing yourself heals your ancestors. Mm-hmm. And that is so huge. Um, 
for me, I don't have a clear vision of, of, you know, I don't have the genealogy of like my grandma's grandma, grandma, like I don't have a clear picture of who they are, but I do know my parents and I know my grandparents and great grandparents. And yeah, just that letting that sentence sink in and to feel it, my healing is their healing. Amazing. Yes. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm taking up a lot of space. Um, but just even just thinking about, you know, how far my great, great, great grandmother wouldn't ever have lived by herself. And that's kind of my journey. I'm, I, you know, now I get to feel that like pride and that love. Yes. And you get to let that in. Right, because our survival strategies of being invulnerably autonomous have begun to soften, and we can actually let in support. Right, we can let in the idea of the possibility of support or of love or of, you know, kindness, gentleness. And if I hadn't have had that addiction recovery support, you know, I don't think I would have come to trauma recovery in the same way. I would have read The Body Keeps the Score and get, gone, oh, yeah, here's more reason why I'm fucked up, right? Like, yeah, right. But I'm, at, I'm now able to read The Body Keeps the Score and be able to soften towards what happened to me and to my parents and grandparents. And because I'm able to soften towards it, I'm able to then become curious. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we look at traditional psychology, traditional psychology says what's wrong with you. And trauma-informed psychology says what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And culturally informed psychology says what happened to your people. Mm-hmm. And liberation psychology says and what continues to happen to you and your people. And when I was in my early addiction recovery, I was just so hyper-focused on what's wrong with me. Like I didn't have the capacity intellectually or emotionally to get beyond that because there was just so much pain there for me. Yeah, And yet I needed the scaffolded support Mm -hmm. in addiction recovery to then get into trauma recovery and move towards my own pain with discernment. And the practices of mindfulness and yoga were so fundamental to that because I am in this excruciating yoga position and being asked to breathe and feel my body and notice sensations. Yeah. Mm. And then I notice the mind and I'm coming back to noticing sensations. And that scaffolds the capacity to be with the present moment. Mm-hmm. And so I replaced my, <laughs> my substance addiction with a yoga addiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it, it held me in good stead until I was able to step into mm-hmm. Trauma recovery. Yeah. And I just, I want to add this little piece of 
you know, having compassion, like coming to what's going on with you, you know, you're in that moment of what's wrong with me and changing that lens into a compassionate lens, compassionate inquiry, compassionate curiosity. That's, that's the term I was trying to get to compassionate curiosity. Amazing. Yes. Yes. And in the meantime, I'm practicing Ashtanga, which is a set sequence of poses. And I'm like, why can't I do Marichi Asana D? They can do it. They can do it. And, and so as soon as I notice that, I'm like, cool. I right, come back to the breath, come back to the moment. Compassionate curiosity arises. Yeah. And then I'm able to notice my body shape, my body type. Yeah, where, how long I've been mm-hmm. practicing for, how long they've been practicing for. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what we say in yoga? That the prize is in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, 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 I hate that. And yet I learned so much from the process of all these yoga poses that I couldn't do. Yet. Yeah. And when I got around to studying internal family systems and I'm invited to notice my inner child and how do you feel towards, you know, the two-and-a-half-year-old who's on the boat in the middle of the ocean while there are pirates who are raiding the boat and your two-and-a-half-year-old self is terrified but how do you feel towards her Hmm. in that moment I could actually feel a sense of devastation yeah about what happened to me whereas in the past it was just a story and I just tell the story like it was just another story amongst hundreds of thousands of other stories Mm -hmm. and yet you know it was a story that came from up here and not down here. Yeah. And once I was able to then experience that devastation to, toward what happened to me, it then was naturally emergent to extend that towards my parents mm-hmm. and all the people that I knew growing up. as well as to other people out there in the world. I actually thought of myself as one of those people that just wasn't compassionate. (laughs) Right? Like I'm one of those tough people, (laughs) which I laugh at now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, and then the, the curiosity, so that was the compassion part. You know, how do I feel towards my, my two and a half year old self? But then the curiosity is, I wonder what, I I wonder about how you could be there for her in this moment in the ways in which she needed back then. Yeah. I'm I'm laughing and moving, exactly, because that's the, oh, that's the crying moment, right? When that clicks. (sighs) And that. Definitely reminds me of the time doing the safe and sound protocol with you, the SSP, 
Um, because I can read and I can watch and learn and go to all these workshops about, you know, healing the inner child. You need to be there for your inner child. And that's, that's all up here as you were doing. And during the SSP, you know, you, you had us holding a a teddy bear if we had one. And I definitely had a moment, a memory came up and I felt the like embodied state of being there for your inner child, not just the mental state. And that was, you know, that's the difference. I feel like that's where the healing happens. Once it's, once it's connected and it clicks in your body, that's where the healing is. Yes. And addiction is a way to not feel my body and to not be in my body. Yeah, and so we can also get addicted to intellectualizing. Yeah. 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 And it holds us in good stead, right? We find out new things. We learn all about addiction and all that trauma. Mm -hmm. And yet that's where mindfulness combined with yoga, right, the being being in your body. Yeah. And so that's where I have such utmost respect and regard and joyousness towards the work that you and the Prison Yoga Project do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've talked about this with um, Bill from Prison Yoga Project and, you know, we go inside and it's kind of, the yoga is kind of just the front or it's the excuse to go in and to hold space and the intention is holding the space so that folks can find the tools within themselves because they have them i can't give anyone tools we can't i don't you know it's the it's the yoga it's the holding space to find those tools within yourself that you have that maybe have been put on mute that have been stuffed down in survival and I need to write down what you've said because that your strengths can become your weakness. weakness. Yes. There we go. That makes sense. <laughs> and just and bring those tools, you know, holding space to feel that embodiment, mm-hmm. that connection. Yes. And for anyone who's worked in addiction recovery for very long, the secret of working with someone in recovery, especially in early recovery, is convincing you that it was your idea (laughs) because we don't like to do what other people tell us to do because that's how we hear it you're telling me what to do so if we can you know if if it comes from within you or if I plant something and then then you get that sense that it's from within you and also maybe the distraction part Mm -hmm. so the distraction part being you know uh, touch your toe, downward dog, touch your toes. Like, oh, we're doing it post. And it's, that's like the inside job, right? I'm maybe you're at the beginning, you're thinking it's about these poses, but then we get into meditation and quieting the mind. And then, oh, this is something else. Yes. And, you know, we're actually also building neuronal connections in the brain. 
right? The left side of the hemisphere of the brain is talking to the right hemisphere of the brain through the left and the right side of the body moving in parallel or doing something different to each other. And the bottom of the brain is talking to the top of the brain, right? And that in and of itself is building new neuronal connections because we know the impact of childhood trauma on brain development is that there are um, truncated uh, neuronal pathways that aren't being built as a result of the need to disembody in order to survive, the need to become hyper-literal, hyper-rational, rigid, black and white thinking, you know, controlling yeah. in order to survive. All or nothing. Yeah, all or nothing in, in order to keep a lid on the chaos. Yeah. And so, and it comes up in yoga, right? Hyper, competitive, hyper-rational, literal, and then chaos. Yeah. And building the bridge between the two. Yeah. The, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's something else that's coming up is, you know, when it, and I feel like it ties into maybe folks in early recovery or folks early in, in maybe yoga or something, you know, if, if you have lived with a lot of trauma and you've dissociated, dissociated was your tool. And then we come in and say, notice your, your breath. That's that's a pretty deep thing to notice. If you've been outside of your body for so long in support of survival. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we we start with tap your toes, notice your toes, starting with the bigger things, bigger things that you can maybe even see with your hands and notice, see with your eyes. And then once you've scaffolded that and you've built those muscles in your brain, then you can come in deeper and deeper. And deeper. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's always invitational. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 So I'm just <laughs> noticing the time. Should we do some Q and A? Yeah. So folks that are with us, um, if you have any questions, please feel free to use the Q&A box button or the chat box, whichever is easiest or most accessible for you. Um, yeah. Let's, I like and to, I have to say, in regards, oh, mm -hmm. in regards to dissociation, you know, I had no idea how much I dissociated until I started meditating. Yeah. Right? And I'd gotten feedback from folks in my life that they get the sense that I'm here, but not here. Right. And it was only when I did, um, I did a whole bunch of Vipassana meditations where it's 10 day silent seated meditation retreats in the tradition of Essengoenka. And yeah, at some point in, into a multi day process, I was like, wow, I haven't been here. Oh, wow. This is how I deal with discomfort. I just leave. But I, I wasn't aware that I left. In that moment, did you want to leave and have? And and did you stay or was this, yeah. Unco totally outside of my conscious awareness that I had left for four days. Yeah. And that I was just like chattering in my head up here and thinking about life and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Mm. Just orienting to the chat box. A lot of love.
there's a message from Shannon. Thank you for putting your message in the chat. I stopped yoga because I realized how much physical pain I was holding. Still not fully, not able to be fully in my body yet. Dissociation is my superpower. I used art and poetry to titrate into somatic embodiment. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I love that, Shannon, just being able to name dissociation as a superpower because we live within this medical model of mental health that says, oh, that's a symptom of a psychopathology. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a superpower, just like all of our character defects. Yes. Yeah. Our superpowers, it's how we manage to survive. Mm. And I think it's really important to speak to that, the char- character defects, you know. Um, these are things that came up in support of survival at some point, childhood, teens, whenever it happened. And I think it's important to honor that and not shame it and not hate it and not hate yourself and not shame because then it's just that shame spiral all over again. This worked at some point to keep me alive and keep me in a place that, that had relative safety or maybe close to relative safety. It doesn't, this thing, this behavior doesn't support me now anymore, but I honor you. And I thank you so much. You saved my life at some point. Yes. And I, you know, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'll give you the superpowers of um, those of us raised in under-resourced homes. Like the first superpower is denial, control, all or nothing thinking, a harsh inner critic, um, perfectionism and disengagement. They're two sides of the same coin. Mm. Yeah. Um, hypersensitivity and hypervigilance, mm-hmm. um, having a very tough outer shell to hide our mushy-gushy inside, verticalized relationships, always being able to figure out where we are on the pecking order and um, having all our relationships be either one up or one down. Mm-hmm. That we're keeping ourselves safe by being automatically submissive or being the one who's always the person in control. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not fight, flight, freeze. It's fight, flight, fix. Yeah. Fix and control. Yeah. And other people might experience us as fix it freaks or control freaks. And yet, then they're they're not recognizing the context within which those survival strategies arose. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that's, again, with the all or nothing. Mm -hmm. You're either at the very top of whatever you're doing or you're submissive and all the way at the very bottom. Yes. Yes. And we have a question in the chat from Kelsey. Is there a specific technique or theory outside of simple mindfulness and yoga that you mentioned that you drew upon to do intergenerational trauma work? Mm-hmm. Um, in adult children of alcoholics and others raised in family of origin dysfunction, what they ask us to do is to do a genogram where you actually do a map of your family tree and you actually name the, the, the you know, what each member of your family was struggling with. 
whether it comes you know relationally, um, work, addiction, yeah. And then I would I actually put a timeline next to mine and actually put in the years, and then I put historical um, trauma events like collective trauma or individual trauma that happened at each point along the way that systemically would have impacted um, anyone who was alive at that point in time in that part of the world. And so that allowed me to get a bigger context for myself, my parents, my family, my people. And then in terms of a specific therapy modality, in terms of intergenerational trauma, I love IFS, internal family systems, because not only are you working with your inner child, you also have within that therapy modality the capacity to work with legacy burdens as well as with heirlooms. Yeah. Uh, I also love family constellations work and psychodrama structures. Uh, We're actually able to three-dimensionally invite other people to take on the roles of our family members so that we can see it. And we can also engage in the corrective emotional experience. Yeah. For me to have someone take on the role of my ideal mother, right, who then holds me in this way. Yeah. Yeah. And to have someone take on the role of my ideal father who then holds me in this way. And in the process, there's a lot of blubbering, right? But that's grief. Oh, that's grief. And the thing that we, you can't do trauma without doing grief. And yet in the dynamics of an under-resourced family, in the dynamics of a family where you have parents who are traumatized and or traumatizing, those parents have unresolved traumatic losses. You know, I look at trauma as an extreme loss. Yeah. And yet that extreme loss may be like, you know, the constant, yeah, of um, racial microaggressions, yeah, mm. as as an example, yeah. But for the most part, it's extreme loss, and so parents who've got unresolved extreme losses, unresolved trauma, aren't able aren't able to be there for their children in developmentally appropriate ways. And so, what you have there with the dynamics of a under resourced family is homeostasis collusion, yeah, also known as denial and rigidity. Yeah, but I just see it as a family that doesn't have enough resources or resourcing for each person's unmet emotional needs to be met, yeah? And within that, you also have impaired mourning. Parents who have unresolved losses aren't able to grieve, and so they're stuck in survival, so they don't teach their children how to grieve because they're not able to meet their child's upsets in appropriate ways. A complaint is a grievance. It's, yeah, it's I'm expressing grief. And yet, what do many of us get told? Don't complain, I'll give you something to complain about. Yeah, our parents hear our upsets as complaints rather than grievances. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the secret truth of many of these 12-step groups is that they're actually grief support groups. Mm-hmm. Because we can't grieve something unless we name it. And we can't grieve some we can't grieve something unless we place it inside our circle of worthiness. So the losses and the longings of your inner child need to be placed inside your circle of worthiness. Mm-hmm. 
before they can be grieved. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for for bringing up ACA because I've I there's so much so much so much love power and value in these 12 step groups and support groups in general and you know not everyone identifies as an alcoholic as an addict um there are so many different types and ACA which stands for adult children of alcoholics have kind of started changing their name to adult children of dysfunctional families and you know i i know plenty of people who could go to that <laughs> yeah i got a list I'm gonna leave. I know that some of some of us we we mistake intensity for intimacy. So I'm just gonna like read a list. And this isn't from ACA. It's from um, one of one of the the research books that I uh, read. So the interactive dynamics of under resourced families. Don't talk about feelings openly. Don't talk about family problems. Maintain family secrets by limiting communications outside the home. Nothing is ever good enough, but you're still expected to strive for unobtainable perfection. You have to work for the benefit of others and you cannot be selfish. Do what I say and not what I do. Play is not something that you do. And above all else, avoid conflict with the parents. Don't trust, don't talk, don't feel. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, right. And, it's a boy's aunt. And they have been, they may have been survival strategies. Yeah. Somewhere along the line in your lineage of ancestors. Yeah. Right. Those are don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, which is the encapsulation of all of that. It's how we survive under fascism. It's how we survive under communism. You know what my Russian friends tell me? The walls have ears. Yeah. So you you can't trust people who are family members to not dob you in, right, to the communists because there's communist indoctrination happening in the school system for the children. Yeah. Yeah. And so decontextualised over time, it becomes culture. It Mm -hmm. becomes family traits. It becomes symptoms of psychopathology. Yeah. Yeah. That that reminds me of something that you had said in a course before. Um, like if your ancestors at the time maybe it was under fascism or, or and slavery, being lazy mm-hmm. was dangerous. And so then that goes through all of these generations. And now you're someone who views laziness as morally wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the intergenerational intergenerational trauma, and that goes with the hustle culture, and then you burn yourself out. Yes, yes. Ah, oh, I just had the five thoughts all at once. Thing happened there, Priscilla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is right. It is, and what happens with this decontextualization of trauma in our own families is that we do become set up. We become sitting ducks for hustle culture. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, because 
Okay, so within a, an under-resourced family, a dysfunctional family, a child does not get to feel the experience of being delighted in. And every child knows that it is our birthright to walk into a room and have every single adult go, oh, there's Priscilla. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know, right? And yet when we don't get that experience, we very amazingly, we surrogate and we substitute with the feeling of feeling needed because feeling needed gets me appreciation. It gets me validation. It gets me approval. Look at all the adults. They light up because I've just been a good girl. Yeah. And being needed also means that I'm not going to get overlooked, left behind, minimized. And then for some of us, finding ways to be needed can mean that I don't get hit or hurt or a family member doesn't get hit or hurt, yeah? And so there's multi-layers to this, but what happens is we surrogate and we substitute the feeling of being wanted with the feeling of being needed. It becomes a setup for codependence. It becomes a setup for um, compassion fatigue and worker burnout. Yeah. And we then disconnect from that feeling of feeling delighted in and or yeah we then try and subversely try and find ways in which to be wanted yeah and consumer culture allows us to have that feeling i've got something that everyone else wants yeah i have a wait list that's a mile long i'm wanted <laughs> look at me i have a beautiful body i'm wanted yeah but it's 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 not satisfying mm-hmm. because the ladder's up against the wrong wall. <sighs> yeah. It's not nourishing. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. itch that can't be scratched. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Thank you. Um, and we have a message in the question box from Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. Something I've been struggling with in the past few years is while holding grace for my parents and the challenges they faced that led them to be the people and parents they were to me. Also recognizing the ways in which the family dynamic is still rather toxic to forgive and hold grace. Also while setting boundaries essential to my own healing. Priscilla, your reminder that as we, but as we heal ourselves, we heal our ancestors. I feel challenged in feeling selfish by focusing on my own healing while loving my family, but also separating from them in many ways. Any suggestions or feedback on that? I'm going to let you take that one, Priscilla, because I'm aware that you're having, that you've, if it's okay to talk about it, that you've had some recent experiences around this. Yeah. Um, and again, thank you, Jennifer, for sharing and being open and vulnerable with us. I I feel a little stuck on the feeling selfish part. I mean, it is selfish, but there's, I've been working on taking that morality, the good and bad, you know, um, it's, you can be selfish in a positive and nourishing way feeding yourself 
feeds you and it's, you know, but you can't be there for other people in the best way if you're not there for yourself first. So if there's an intention to being there for your family, being there for your loved ones, you, the work here needs to be done first. And I love how, how Linda uses the term scaffolding. You know, you learn something first, then you can learn something, you crawl and then you walk and then you run because that's really what it is. You're building a foundation and on that foundation built strong, you can build more and more and more. And once you're there fully for yourself, then you, then you have more to, you have space. You're there for yourself. You're recognizing boundaries, how to make them so important. And then you can be there with the overflow for others. Yes. You know, doing things for yourself is morally neutral. It's morally neutral. I'm going to write it in chat because I need to remember that. (laughs) Morally neutral. Because this is the thing, right? Within the the dynamics of under-resourced families, we, you know, our parents can... Okay, as children, we just love our parents and we just want to help them, right? So then we become sort of enmeshed with them, but they may also, because of their own lack of resources, use us, for lack of a better term, to um, to help them with their unmet emotional and physical mm. needs, right? And so that's where recognising that doing things for yourself may be overcoupled with feelings of being made to feel guilty or being shamed for that um, means that morally neutral, yeah, and saying that to yourself over and over again, yeah, may help you to to, uh, a path forward. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And... We have a question from Zoe in the chat box. What you said about conflating your culture with trauma and internalizing inferiority stood out. I work with Latinx immigrant survivors of trauma. How can we help folks distinguish between culture and violence slash trauma? Have a strengths-based perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. Yes. So that's where being able to name the symptoms of trauma yeah, and being able to name that perhaps many of the adults that you currently know have lived through the unspeakable. And maybe perhaps this has been going on for generations, but this is not who we are as a peoples. Yeah, this is not who we are as a peoples. This is how trauma has impacted our people. And it makes absolute sense that you didn't know any of this beforehand. And therefore, it makes absolute sense that I haven't kissed an Asian man, right, as an example, right? But you knowing your clients, you'll be able to fill in the gap of whatever that thing is in terms of the ways in which your client has internalized whiteness as superior to Latinx cultures, yeah? hmm yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. This is so lovely. I'm so yeah. happy to be here with you and everyone. 
Yeah, thanks for inviting that pause, Priscilla. I know that it can be um, it can be a lot to have someone name specifically for myself the ways in which I've internalized whiteness as superior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've had that experience with many of my clients where where we then actually go, "Whoa, let's look at your dating history," because you know something like this will come up. Mm-hmm. And I I did have something else that I wanted to touch on, but but coming back to this, you know, you, you just said, you know, the internalized whiteness and you've never kissed an Asian man. I feel like, you know, trying to put myself in, in that shoe. And there's like a feeling of, of shame. Mm-hmm. Like I have internalized whiteness. I I'm doing the same thing. And I'm curious if that's something that you also felt and went through. And I don't know it, you know, I'm just thinking of this now. It's just, it's a new one. It's a new one for me. <laughs> and so I'm feeling, I don't know which way to go. Yeah. You know, being able to, look, what we know from addiction recovery is that life gets easier when you find your people, right? The people have earned the right to hear your story and the spaces where we actually specifically create them to share these stories you know, around addiction or around codependence or around sex and love addiction or around, um, you know, our family of origin dynamics. And I see that there's a lot of 12-step groups out there, you know, AA for agnostics and atheists, AA, women's only group, AA for queer identifying folks. Um, It would be nice to have AA BIPOC spaces. Yeah. Because I learned a lot about trauma. And as a result of learning about trauma, I actually then dove into my own origin story to help me make sense of myself in my life. And I found more about the refugee experience for my parents and for myself. And yet there was always this feeling of something missing, like here are my symptoms and then here's what happened to us, right? But there wasn't any physical or emotional abuse in the home. And so I'm, I'm felt, I feel like I'm looking for a trauma history that doesn't exist. And I'm getting all confused by this. And then the last year, I've come across the work of Dr. Kenneth Hardy, who's a black psychologist, and he talks about the invisibilized wounds of racial trauma. And he talks about internalized evaluation and internalized devaluation and internalized idealization of the qualities of of whiteness, an assaulted sense of self learned voicelessness, psychological homelessness, complex, ambiguous loss and collective grief, survival orientation and rage. And for me to recognise that there are, that, that this, right, we don't have enough conversations about a sociocultural phenomenon known as racialized trauma and the impact that has on the psyche, on the soul, and the ways in which we don't have the spaces within which to unpack all of this 
period, dot, 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 Mm -hmm. let alone when it comes to addiction. Yeah. I've loved or that term psychological homelessness. You know, you mentioned it in our pre-meeting yesterday. You, I you know, you just said it again. I was like, oh, we could have a whole a whole webinar on those two words. You know, coming from someone who is first generation born in the United States, Mexican parents, white passing. Da 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 da. You know that like. I live in spaces, you know, uh, call upon your ancestors. And as I mentioned, I know only up to like grandparents. I don't know where the rest are from. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel that, you know, I don't know what land to picture necessarily because there's so much movement too, right? Yes. Through the generations. So maybe we can just. <laughs> Yes. And when we talk about psychological homelessness, that's something that's very common in alcoholic families, in dysfunctional families, right? Like that phenomenon in and of itself. But then we add the added layer of race, ethnicity, culture, religion. Yeah. And that adds an even an added dimension of betwixt and between, never quite one and not the other. Yeah. And there's a loneliness there. There's a pervasive loneliness in being white passing of Latinx, Hispanic origins. There's a pervasive loneliness of um, white proximity and Mm. assimilation as a survival strategy for Asian bodies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, again, it's a lifelong journey. There's no graduation. No, there is no, yes, yes. Yeah. And yet what I love about AA and NA is it just starts here. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what, if I had have um, come across an AA or NA group where it was only Asian bodies, I think I would have experienced so much um, shame as a result of how not Vietnamese mm. I've been that I am, that I don't know if I could have even tolerated being in that space. Yeah. 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 And then I think of like, oh, then get more, get more specialized, get more specific. Vietnamese um, children of immigrants who went to Australia. Yes. Yes. Right. It's a both end. It's like, yeah, if I had, a, if one of those groups had have existed and there were folks in there who were sharing their story the way I'm sharing mine, it, yeah. it would have actually cracked that nut open. But that space isn't available. So in the meantime, a space where there aren't any other Asians, let alone Vietnamese people, is actually perceived by my nervous system as more safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, from your own experience, have you stepped into groups where there's Hispanic, Latinx folks? What has that been like for you? I feel lucky that the spaces that I've gone into were, um, you know, it started when I was living in Mexico City, but it was the English speaking group. So it was either folks from Mexico who speak English or folks who moved there from places in the U.S. And so 
that for my nervous system was very comfortable unless it was a particularly, and the groups were really small. They would be like seven people. But if it was a group of five white men, my nervous system is, is looking and wanting for someone else of color, someone else um, either queer or someone or another female to feel like together, togetherness. But then we're all there for the same purpose of sharing our, our stories and our sharing our healing. And once that, that seal is broken, then I'm like, I'm back in my community. Yeah. Yes. Um, and being mindful of time, got about five minutes left. I just wanted to share some things or Linda, if you wanted to share some things that we should know about how to keep in contact with you. And I've got some notes that you've got some events coming up. Yes. Okay. I'm just going to name it. My traumatized part of myself says exposure equals death. Right. So I'm just going to step towards that. And here you go. Come and hang out with me. I have a Facebook page, uh, personal and business, and you're welcome to join either. Uh, On my personal page, I actually put some of my musings and a lot of my musings are related to race and identity and trauma. Whereas uh, on my professional page, which I do share some on on my um, personal page is more around, um, you know, what I'm doing professionally out in the world and how you can keep in contact with me in that way. Uh, I'm currently presenting for the Trauma Research Foundation for TRF Tuesdays. There's a couple of videos already up on YouTube. It's little bite-sized segments of uh, Trauma 101, so trauma education. I have an upcoming one-day workshop through the Asian Mental Health Collective that focuses upon intergenerational trauma, specifically centering the needs of refugees, immigrants, and adult children of alcoholic families. Um, I can't think further ahead than that, Priscilla. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> I've dropped in your website as well, linda-tai.com. Oh, and I'm just so grateful. Um, I was introduced to you via the 12-week somatic certification course. And that might, I think that might've been my first kind of somatic training. I'd read the body keeps the score and, you know, going through our prison yoga project, foundational training and stuff like that. I was getting more, becoming more aware of what inner work is and what it looks like, what can, what it can feel like. Um, and then we had the opportunity to go to the 12 week certification and that just blew my mind. I especially really appreciate how you get into the science of things because I like to be a little like, you know, if something feels very maybe ambiguous or, or, you know, unattainable, um, I get either get a little confused or I get questionable. And then you bring in the science you know, this is the brain. This is how it's working. These are the, your nervous systems. This is how everything's interconnected. Um, and that was amazing. And of course, the safe and sound protocol was also incredible. I still don't know how it works, but 
I felt it. (laughs) (sighs) Yes. To feel what you feel, to trust what you know, right? This is recovery. Mm -hmm. And to not feel like you have to explain or over-explain or defend yourself. Yeah. And uh, to honor everyone's time here, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, And Linda, if there's anything, any parting words that you want to share or anything. Um, The secret of life is that it's a lifelong thing. And so I invite you to be kind with yourself and gentle with yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone.